Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. Well, we have Nick McGrew with us with Polyman. I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes, but Nick, I really appreciate you joining us. And Nick's been in this game now as a lawyer for over 10 years, if not more. And uh, so we're going to kind of get into the nitty gritty, not only regarding some syndication, but some of the legal documents that we all handle on a regular basis. So Nick, I really appreciate your time. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Very happy to be here and happy to share my knowledge and help you out and help your listeners if I can. Yeah, this is going to be interesting. So, uh, you know, I mentioned that there's a lot number of documents that we as as buyers and sellers handle on a regular basis. And we kind of rely fairly heavily on a like a title company or and or lawyers. Thankfully, my title company has has the lawyer in house and we don't see that very often. But um, let's let's start with some of those documents that uh, a person should probably familiarize themselves with and uh, may not get the attention that they probably deserve. And you know, yeah. you know what I mean by that, right? I think we see a lot of real estate investors, especially starting off, just randomly downloading whatever they find on the internet. Yes. So one place where I've seen that is with the LOI, the letter of intent, or sometimes called letter of interest. That while oftentimes when it's drafted, it's not extremely binding, it does set the terms of negotiation when you get into the actual document. And yeah, I've seen many people where they're like, oh yeah, just got one online. And um, either they might be taking the quote unquote standard terms from that online one that your deal is unique. So there's not necessarily going to be standard terms. Um, Or uh, what I've also seen is that it leaves out some of the more important things that should be in there. So that when you get to the point where you're negotiating the, the true agreement, you still have a lot of negotiating to do. Whereas in my opinion, in most cases, we're looking for the LOI to kind of set the stage of what the big picture terms are. And then you kind of let the lawyers handle all the nitty gritty stuff afterwards. Right. You know, when you say set the stage too, it kind of, would would it be fair to say that you're kind of setting the rules of the game? So everybody's on the same page and you understand what the next steps might be? Yeah, definitely. So you'll have things, obviously price is one thing that you'll often put in there. Um, But some other important things are the time periods, such as um, due diligence or um, any contingencies, if you're going to have to get a loan or other things like that. And so those aren't really outlined well, when it comes time to actually negotiate the purchase and sell agreement or PSA, you're going to be really negotiating. Whereas if you've already agreed on the purchase price, you've agreed that you're going to have a 60 day due diligence period, then it really is, hey, lawyer, make sure this says what we already agreed to, but there's not a whole lot of uh, points you're having to negotiate at that point. Right. So when it comes to the letter of intent, then, um, do you find that there's any kind of uh, differences from state to state? Is there any kind of regional things that we need to be aware of? Yes. If you're if you're in a different state, you're going to want to make sure that you have somebody who's versed in both just the law and the transaction in, in that state. We primarily operate out of California and Washington. Um, I have clients that are in other states and we'll usually farm that out to have somebody who's an expert in that area. But one example is um, in Texas. 
there's some sort of gas or something that you do a um, it's part of due diligence that in a lot of states we work in is not a thing. And so if you have somebody that's uh, used to operating out of California, for instance, they might be looking at things in Texas or somewhere else that Texas doesn't do. And they also might be missing things uh, um, that California doesn't do, but Texas does do. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in the end, make sure that you don't just randomly download something from the internet and make sure you have something local specific. Can you give us an example of where this kind of went sour for somebody that where they uh, probably should have done their homework or found somebody local to, to help them draft something like this? Yeah, kind of the uh, instance that I was talking about, um, I forget, I'm drawing a blank on the exact name of the gas, but it is a portion of due diligence and part of the environmental review. Um, And in many areas, you wouldn't really even need to worry about that. But we hadn't, or they hadn't um, allocated who was responsible for that, who was going to be paying for it, and also the time period in which it had to be completed. And so the client kind of got stuck with that and either had to decide, Am I going to move forward taking on this potential environmental issue, which can sometimes be quite costly, um, or am I going to get out and lose my uh, my earnest money deposit, which also could be costly as well? Sure. So let's kind of define a minute there too. You you mentioned a letter of an intent versus what maybe a purchase agreement. Is that would be would that be the next stage, or are we talking about the same thing depending on what part of the country you're in? They, they're not the same thing. Now, you might see them having different uh, areas covered or in one area, they might have an LOI that's very, very, very comprehensive, whereas other people, they'll do an LOI that might just have purchase and, you know, the LOI period to when you get to do the due diligence. So those two agreements are not the same. While a letter of intent, it says letter of intent, there are some binding aspects of it, but because it's typically not going to be as thorough and comprehensive, there's still negotiating room and it's typically not final. Whereas a PSA or purchase and sales agreement, that is going to be very thorough. It's going to have all the minutia and uh, granular details. And that one is definitely going to be a binding agreement. Uh, sometimes you'll see it to where the PSA is reiterating a lot of what's in the LOI and then just adds the additional kind of lawyer stuff in there. Um, but yeah, they, they are two separate agreements. And would you say that it's, again, we're, we're back to with the purchase agreement, finding a, a local lawyer or finding a company such as yours that can find those, that, that expertise on a local area? Yes, definitely. I even have clients that say, you know, well, we like working with you. We want you to do it. And I say, no, I don't want me to do it. You don't want me to do it because you want somebody who has the expertise in this specific area. You know, as much as we love helping our clients and try to do as much as we can, I don't want to do a disservice by me helping them if I'm not going to be giving them the best help that they can get. Sure. So a lot of people that start into real estate investing, they get into wholesaling, you know, the the concept of getting a property under contract and then essentially having an assignable contract that they can sell to another investor. Like what, what would you suggest somebody do in that regards regarding the necessary paperwork? So there I would say talk with a real estate attorney in your local area and pay them. I know it's not fun to pay money, but pay them to draft some documents for you. Tell them what you're doing. Say, look, I have a wholesale company. Uh, this is what we do. And have them draft the documents for you. Um, and with that, you can create a pretty strong template um, because while each deal is going to be different, there may not be dramatically different depending on what you, what you have going on. 
So start with a strong template and um, yeah, you're going to pay for that. But then once you have that pretty solidified, uh, the hope is that uh, and I even have clients that do this to where they'll make a few changes. We'll I'll meet with them briefly. They'll tell me what's going on. We'll review to make sure that the changes they made um, have incorporated all the newness of this deal and they can uh, move forward to where they're not paying me the same amount that they paid me when I originally drafted it because I'm not drafting it from uh, scratch anymore. So yeah, I'd say definitely get your documents in order. Uh, one thing with wholesaling uh, is that you have to make sure that that contract is assignable um, because by default, it may not necessarily be assignable, particularly depending on where you're at. And so if your intent is to get into a, a contract and then and sell it off to somebody else, but the buyer doesn't know about that and the buyer hasn't agreed to that, depending on what your documents say, you might not be able to do that. Sure. So we moved from the uh, letter of intent to the purchase agreement. What other type of documents have you helped people with in uh, when it comes to this or part of the sale or purchase? Yeah, it's not so much part of the actual purchase, but many times we'll have clients that are acquiring property through entities of some sort. And so we'll help them create those entities, such as an LLC, and we'll create the operating agreements that goes along with that and all the kind of governing documents that goes along with an entity. Uh, another one that we look over, uh, particularly when we're looking at commercial deals, is especially larger commercial deals, um, a lot of the loan documents. Uh, sometimes, depending on the size of the deal, the lender is going to have their own attorney, which funny part is that they, you, the buyer, get to pay for that. Uh, but the lender is going to have their own attorney and they're going to have documents or going to want to see a lot of documents. And so um, I've had some where, you know, it's a larger deal and we were meeting, I was meeting with the lender's counsel every week to make sure that our documents were on track and that we're getting the right information and things in so that we had closed in the time period that we had specified. You know, that's, that's a really interesting point that you just brought it up there. And I, I don't think most of investors even consider it. Most, most people, when they're looking at, a, at mortgage papers or any, any documents from the bank, I think people just kind of blindly sign them. Um, <laughs> wouldn't you agree? Like what, I mean, Absolutely. you probably have saved, have saved people quite a bit of hassle in the end, just reviewing those documents ahead of time. Yeah. And this kind of goes back to similarly to with the LOI and the PSA. A lot of times the lender is going to give you a term sheet. Um, you can almost think of that as the LOI for the loan. And so at the very minimum, we're making sure that term sheet is uh, or that the actual loan documents are echoing what's in the term sheet. Um, now, with you know economic cycles, sometimes the rates might change and things like that. Um, but other things like you know if there's prepayment penalty, um, any defaults or extensions or interest only or whatever that's going to be, we make sure that if they said there's they're going to give that in the term sheet, then we make sure it's in the loan documents or at the very least we notify the client to say, hey, this is different than what you originally told me. So are you, were you aware of that or are you okay with that? And sometimes it's just the market has shifted and the term sheets terms are no longer viable. Um, other times we've caught somewhere it was a mistake. And so thankfully that we found it so that the client wasn't signing something, thinking that it agreed with the term sheets, when in reality there were some different terms to it altogether. So I guess, you know, a lot of people would think that those documents are just kind of non-negotiable and that you, banks don't change any, any of the verbiage there, but you've, you found otherwise that that is it is something that you know the bank has their representation i'm it does make sense that the buyer or, or the investor would have representation as well 
Yeah. So I tell everybody there, if it's your contract, your contract is unique. It's always negotiable. Now, with that, if you do want to do business with that particular lender, you're going to need to get into some kind of agreement with them. Um, so it is much more difficult to negotiate certain types of terms. Uh, but there are other terms where, again, where I've either caught things that don't um, comply with what the original term sheet was, um, or sometimes there are some more kind of lawyer type things to where I say, oh, this is going to create an issue for my client. And I can come up with other ways that will satisfy the lender and their concerns, but also be a bit, little bit more protective for my clients as well. Sure. Okay. You know, when somebody is especially first starting out, you know, we're, you're, you're trying to uh, identify and build your team, if you will. So picking and finding a lawyer in your area is one of them. Have you found that there's any questions that we should be asking just to make sure that there it's a right fit? Yeah, you'd want to first. So again, if they're going to be part of your team, uh, then hopefully it's going to be somebody you're working with long term. So first thing I'd say is just, you know, how do you feel when you're around them? Do you feel com not comforted, but do you feel comfortable? Do you feel like you can talk to them? Um, is it at least moderately enjoyable? I get that lawyers are maybe not the most fun. And when you're looking over loan documents, that's not a whole lot of fun. But is it somebody that you're going to be okay with? Oh, I got to call them. And is it going to be like, oh, my goodness, I have to call them again? Or is it, oh, I got to call them and ask them a few questions? So first, I'd say, you know, look at, is this somebody that you do think you'd like to have a long-term business relationship with, um, if that's what your goal is? Um, regarding questions, I'd say definitely ask them about their experience, what they have done in the areas that you're looking for help for. Um, if you are concerned also, I'd say ask them, do you have any uh, past clients that we could maybe talk to or any references? Um, or do they have any testimonials on their website? That sort of thing. Um, you're going to want to know about their pricing. Uh, and I'd also ask them, you know, can you give me some estimates uh, if they don't have flat rates? You know, can you give me some estimates of kind of what's the low end potentially looking like? What's the high end looking like? And what are some variables that are going to make that go lower or higher? Um, also, you might ask, you know, what are some things that I can do that could potentially uh, make that price go lower or higher? Um, so, yeah, having figuring out what their their pricing structure is um, and their experience, I'd say, is, are probably the two big things. Um, but again, as I mentioned at the beginning, make sure it's somebody that you're actually going to work with. You're paying them money. Um, and again, I know that law is not the most fun thing, but you want to make it at least as enjoyable as it can be. Well, I mean, let's face it. Uh, lawyers are why you're different. Entrepreneurs are why you're different. You know, you're kind of a an oddball. You're a lawyer and an entrepreneur. Uh, it's it's most entrepreneurs do everything and anything that they can to avoid this type of thing. <laughs> Versus, <Yep>. you know, <laughs> to be wired to read through legal documents. I I frankly don't know how you do it. Oddly, it's it's funny. A lot of my lawyer friends that are litigators that are in court, they're like, how do you sit at a desk and read through contracts? And I'm like, it's amazing. It's wonderful. I don't know how you're in court all the time. So I guess everybody has their different interests. So out, outside of the ones that we've talked about then, the only other one that comes to mind for me is when you're dealing with rentals. Do you do any kind of rental agreements and helping with that type of thing as well? So we do not handle that. And this kind of gets again to you want localized and, and potentially specialized help. Um, so I'm in California, which is a very tenant friendly state, and it's mm -hmm. very easy to uh, run afoul of landlord tenant law. So when we have clients that are having those issues, we refer them to somebody who is living, breathing, sleeping landlord tenant law every day. 
um, because we kind of understand the general parts of it, but it's not what we're doing day in and day out. And so um, it's one thing that's very easy to get wrong. And so we want to make sure that they're working with somebody who can get it right. So that's actually something, even though we do handle many, many aspects of real estate, uh, that's one aspect that we don't. Um, and again, I think the re for me to take that on, it would need to be something that we're doing very, very regularly so we can stay up to date on what the laws are that change pretty regularly and also have kind of a war chest of different tools and techniques on how to handle different issues. And so we don't have that. So um, that's not something that we do. Yeah. No, the reason I ask is that a lot of the time uh, people will suggest talking to your local real estate investing uh, RIA group or, or there's like a rental authority and to get like some of these documents as well. And I, sometimes I question even where they might've gotten those from. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd say it's a good start, but don't stop there, you know, right. just maybe start there. And, you know, if you are trying to go through it yourself, make your changes and then have somebody who actually is experienced in it to kind of give the final uh, sign off on those. Sure. Cause I, I've seen some that, work seem to work pretty good, but then also some that are, I can tell automatically are lacking in a few areas as well. So again, we're talking to Nick McGrew and uh, he's with polymathlegal.com. And I'll make sure again to have that link in the show notes. But if you're wondering about the credentials and everything that Nick has, I'm going to have that information in the show notes as well. So take a look. I know I don't spend a lot of time with that, Nick, regarding credentials because frankly i think you can, everybody can find your background on your website and and you've repeated that all the so many times that it's more fun to just jump in and sometimes i feel like i kind of railroad into into different categories but i i'd like to spend the last half of our conversation a little bit on syndications and and some of the legal work that needs to be done there because a lot of people syndications is almost aspirational, just like multifamily investing in the real estate and investing world. And if you're going to scale to the level that most of us dream to, I think syndication has to be on your radar. Tell us, let's start things off. Like if somebody is interested in syndication, where should they start? I'd say you want to start with building your potential investor network. Um, so with syndication, and one thing I'd say is that syndication is not, I want to say it's not as complicated, but a lot of times people think syndication has got to be big commercial buildings or large multifamily. Um, I have clients that are uh, wholesalers um, and they syndicate, basically have a fund to where they're using that to acquire uh, those properties or our clients that are flippers doing that. Um, I have clients that are doing short-term rentals that have uh, syndications that are acquiring that way. So all syndication is, is you're pulling money together to do a project. And so I, I, even my first syndication was for in an entertainment. So I had a movie script that they were trying to get produced and wanted to do it themselves. And so they were raising pro, uh, um, capital for it. Um, so syndication is not this unreachable thing as it might seem. That's how I'd start out. Um, but where you should start is start building your investor network now. My most successful clients, they will always say, you start raising for the next deal well before the next deal. And what they mean by that and kind of what I mean by that is start talking to them about, you know, have you heard of investing in real estate? What do you know about it? Here's the types of projects or deals that we're looking for. Here's the general types of returns and the issues that could come. So that you're kind of educating and acclimating that potential investor 
to the investment generally, but then your company as well. So that when the time comes and you're looking to have them actually write a check, you're a few steps ahead because you're not having to get them used to the idea. They're going to say, oh, yeah, this is that thing that we talked about a couple months ago. Okay, uh, yeah, tell me a little bit more about the specific deal. Um, so, yeah, I'd say first thing you want to do is start building your investor network. Even when you are, even if you feel like you're far away, just start getting people acclimated so that when you do make that phone call or knock on that door, they already kind of know what you're talking about or uh, have an idea of what you're going to be talking about. Yeah, and I can't stress that enough. In fact, I, I've been on the record saying that you should be building your investor network as fervently as you are trying to find that next deal. So can you talk a little bit about the different types of syndications that are available? You know, I, I know that people might have, might hear the term credited investors and and a few other things. Is is there a variety of, of solutions that they could pursue? Yes. So securities laws are not simple by any means, uh, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, you've got lots of different options. So I'll, I'll take a step back first and define what security is, and then we can kind of talk about some of the uh, options. So to determine whether you're selling a security, the uh, SEC uses what's called the Howey test. It's from an old Supreme Court case. And it basically says that if there is an investment of money into a common enterprise with an expectation of profit, primarily from the work of someone else. So investment of money, common enterprise, expectation of profit, primarily from the work from someone else, then that means that you are selling a security. And so it goes further and says, if you're selling a security, you either have to register that security or have an exemption from registration. And so my company, we work with the exemptions. Uh, registration is, you know, if you hear about the IPOs, public companies, very cumbersome, very expensive. Uh, typically, new companies can't do it because they're not going to have the financial track record and other things that are necessary. And so uh, my law firm, we work with exemptions. So trying to figure out what are ways that you can raise this capital without having to register. And so you mentioned uh, the terms uh, accredited, and I believe you said sophisticated as well. Those ones come into play when we're talking about one exemption called Regulation D. So uh, simply put, an accredited investor is somebody, an individual that makes $200,000 or more the past two years and anticipates making that much or more again this year, or they have a net worth of $1 million or more, excluding their primary residence. So we're talking about either high earners or people that have a high, high net wealth. Uh, then sophisticated investors, That's this gets back to where I said it's kind of complicated. It's very not well defined. Um, sophisticated investors, we're looking at somebody basically that has the resources either um, themselves or with a financial planner or an attorney or CPA that can help determine and uh, vet this deal to see, does this deal make sense for my particular financial situation? So sometimes we're looking at uh, prior investments, education, work experience, that sort of stuff. So accredited is high net worth or high earner. Sophisticated means you have the resources available to determine the merits of this deal. And that applies to Regulation D because within Regulation D, and we're going to start throwing out a whole lot of numbers and letters now, Regulation D has two subcategories, at least the ones that we're going to talk about today, and that's 506B and 506C. 506B allows you to have up to 35 sophisticated investors and an unlimited number of accredited investors 
but you must have a pre-existing substantial relationship with all of those investors, meaning you've got to know them before the deal was on the table, and you have to generally know whether they're accredited or sophisticated and why. Um, so that's uh, 506B of Regulation D. Then the other one is 506. 506C allows only investments from accredited investors, but you are allowed to do general solicitation. So all your investors must be accredited, but you can essentially advertise your offering. Whereas in the previous one, you had to know all your investors and kind of know their financial situation. With 506C, as long as they're accredited, then uh, you can uh, take their investment whether you knew them or not. With B, how do you provide the validation that you knew them in advance? Wonderful question. So the SEC requires that you take reasonable steps to verify their status. Um, I recommend that clients uh, have a system, especially when they're getting uh, have a, a new potential investors, have a system in place. You know, a lot of clients will say, you know, what, we try to meet with an investor and kind of explain just the types of investments that we do. Then we wait a month. We talk to them to see what types of investments they've invested in before, what they're invested into or uh, yeah, what they are currently invested in. And then their next meeting, they if they have a deal, then they'll start talking about the actual deal. And so if you have a system, that's one way uh, that helps document it, because you can say every investor that we uh, take, this is what they go through. Um, one thing that also that we do is we actually have a questionnaire um, and some other documents that kind of has the parties both say, here's how we met, here's how we know each other, here's when we met or generally when we met. Um, so that's another way that can help document it as well. Does that relationship have to be seasoned to a certain point, if that question even makes sense? Yes. So this, again, the SEC doesn't help us a whole lot in clarifying it. So I always say kind of the, the process I was given before, have one meeting where you're just introducing yourself, being very general, not talking about uh, at least not any specific deals, maybe talking about some past deals. Uh, have another meeting, uh, I say 30 days in between to where you're kind of getting to know them and their investment appetite and then go from there. Uh, now, that 30 days is not absolutely required, but that's something that I do and, or I advise based upon just trying to make sure we're staying extra safe. And it's that is pulled from kind of some previous re uh, regulations that have now are not uh, exactly uh, in play. Uh, but nonetheless, for me, I say, you know, I feel comfortable if if we're following this. Now, there are other ways outside of that, but then you start getting into even grayer areas. So for me, I feel comfortable if you can say, I've met them three times over the course of more than 30 days, um, I, I would feel okay with that. But again, it's kind of the SEC is going to look at each case by case. Sure. So when you help a business get into, into a syndication and you, you help set everything up accordingly, do you also provide, you, you kind of briefly mentioned the fact that you have a questionnaire and a few other things. What do you, do you help the business understand like the process and, and what they need to accomplish and what type of documentations they need to, to hold? Or do you, do you even, maybe you even help them and conduct some of these interviews? Like, how does that look? Yeah. So we don't help interacting with the actual in investors, um, but yeah, we are there to guide and advise. We do this quite a bit. So we have a pretty good system of our own internally regarding the documents and everything and instruction of what, what the investor is going to need. Um, so we try to lay it out and make it kind of as, as simple as we can. Obviously, it's not simple, but we try to make sure that we, you know, because we've done it a lot, we are 
we know some of the questions that are going to be asked. And so we try to make sure that we have instructions and things that are going to answer those questions uh, before the client even uh, is able to ask them. Mm-hmm. So for the most part, what's out in the ether there is the uh, working with simply accredited investors. And you mentioned the other one. Is that uh, an easier option to, to, to handle or is that something that somebody... And maybe I'm I'm having a hard time formulating that question right now, but is it one or the other? So yeah, you are going to have to choose 506B or 506. Um, I wouldn't say that either is ne- easier than the other. They're both they're going to be have similar um, um, similar documentation, and so oftentimes I tell clients look at you know where do you think your investors are coming from? If you think that the majority of your investors are accredited then go for 506C because you can get all of them. Plus you can advertise and get some new ones. If you have some accredited investors, uh, but also some people that are unaccredited, then 506B might work well because you can get up to 35 of those unaccredited plus um, an unlimited amount of the accredited ones that you actually know. Sure. Okay. So outside of the questionnaire and having an understanding of their background, and I'm sure that there's some sort of, verification on their income and net worth. Is there any other documentation that needs to occur there that that the uh, business owner needs to be aware of? So the big one is what's called a PPM or private placement memorandum that we assist with. Um, It's a big disclosure document. Um, It's pretty long and it's going to look pretty scary. And that's one thing that I always tell clients. I say, look, this is not part of your marketing. This is not to help you sell the deal. It's going to say the world could end. You could get zero dollars. This investment could be horrible, but please go ahead and invest if you feel comfortable with that anyway. Um, but And I always warn clients, I'm like, look, this is going to look scary and it's meant to be that way. And, you know, from the SEC's perspective, it's a private offering. So you're not having to give the same information that a public company is going to give. So there is certain a certain level of disclosure that they want you to give so that people can assess the risk. Um, From my perspective, I say, look, that actually helps our client, the the issuer here. You know, if one of those crazy random things actually does occur, we can, and the investor's upset, you can say, hey, you know, I'm really sorry. Here's what we're doing to mitigate this. But also we told you that this could happen. Whereas, you know, sometimes clients are like, can we like take that out? Or do we need to tell them that? And I say, yes, we would rather that you, uh, we'd rather tell them upfront when you don't have their money versus telling them later and having that bad thing go bad and you have their money. Now they're going to be really upset. Sure. Okay. Well, this has been really eye opening, Nick. Uh, and, uh, we can, I have a feeling we could just keep going here, (laughs) but, um, uh, if you're ready, I'm going to give you some, uh, rapid fire, but one more time, polymathlegal.com. But, uh, are you ready for a, a few extra questions? Let's do it. So here's your chance to bust a real estate investing myth. We probably have seen those late night TV programs. What do you want to just tell everybody that that's just not true? Late night or a a real estate investing myth. I don't know if it's so much a myth, but deals do go bad. Uh, And we've been in a a good real estate economic cycle. So things have been going really well. Um, but I'd say now I th- it's even more important for you to vet those deals because the market's not going to save a bad deal, even though I'd say in the past couple of years, the market has been able to set, save a bad deal. So not so much a myth, but 
I don't know, close enough. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I kind of follow you because one of the old adages is that time kind of heals all real estate investing mistakes, right? <laughs> so what book would you recommend everybody checking out? And you're not allowed to say Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Yeah, the book I often recommend is called Limitless by Jim Quick. Okay. It's a great book. He had a uh, he fell when he was young, had a, a a brain injury, so he had a difficulty learning, and that forced him to kind of learn more about how the brain works. And so he just had lots of good brain and productivity hacks that I liked. Okay, cool. What is the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Be patient and steadfast. Okay, cool. What is the biggest real estate investing mistake you've ever made, and what did you learn from it? I'd say the biggest one I made was obviously ha- having the lawyer uh, say this, but not vetting the in the issuer enough. Didn't quite have as much skill as I thought, and so uh, the, there was issues that could have been avoided. And so uh, moving forward, I do a lot more questioning, a lot more uh, looking into them before I'll uh, invest with them. Sure. And if you could go back into time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Just keep going. Even when it gets hard, just keep going. Kind of back to the patience and steadfast. Keep going. And when you look back 10 years from now, you'll be pretty happy with what you've done. Yeah. Everybody, especially entrepreneurs, we all have a journey, don't we? That that can fill up the whole episode as well. Well, Nick, is there a question or concept you wished we would have covered here tonight? We hit on a good amount in a short amount of time. Um, Again, I think one thing I just want to reiterate is with PPMs, if for anybody that's thinking about doing syndication, PPM, it's your friend, but it's not your marketing friend. It is going to look scary. It's going to be long, um, but that's kind of, it's doing its job and what it's supposed to do in that situation. Yeah, I really appreciate your time, Nick. Head over to Polymath for some more information on how Nick and his team may be able to help you. But hope you'll come back sometime, Nick. This was great. Definitely. I'm happy to pop on whenever you'll have me. Thank you, sir. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.